Welcome to Cato Audio for February 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's Ian Vasquez describes the circumstances that brought relatively free Chile a new avowedly socialist president. Cato's Chris Edwards makes the case for angel investors. Democratic Senator Ron Wyden kicks off Cato's conference on surveillance. And Daniel Dew of the Pacific Legal Foundation details some principles of separation of powers. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The U.S. sells or otherwise provides weapons to countries around the world and sometimes to groups of people who aren't affiliated with a particular country. And to talk about that and uh, the costs and benefits of the U.S. engaging in that policy, Jordan Cohen, policy analyst in defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute, and Eric Gomez, director of defense policy studies at the Cato Institute. So, uh, Jordan, I want to start with you. Uh, Give me a sense of the size of the U.S program, it's probably not really a program or perhaps multiple programs that the U.S. has to provide weapons to other countries or, like I said, groups of people. Yep. So the U.S. sells weapons to or has sold weapons to 169 different countries since 2009. And that is mainly made up of major weapon systems in terms of total dollar value. So that's like giant planes like the F-16 or the F-35. They also sell small arms and light weapons to both governments and to non-government entities. And that program is massive and has been growing in size every year since 2009. Eric, what kind of weapons are we talking about here? In terms of dollar value, most of the weapons sold are large platforms like airplanes, tanks, other ground vehicles, even ships sometimes. Um, And in terms of though the risk of something that gets lost or uh, given away inappropriately, uh, that's more in the small arms and light weapons categories. And the Cato Institute recently released a new policy paper by Jordan and Trevor Thrall uh, that's an annual update to a risk index that they've created to measure these risks of weapon sales, especially things getting diverted or used uh, inappropriately in ways that hurt U.S. interests. All right. So, uh, Jordan, to what extent are these weapons used inappropriately? And uh, how often does the U.S. predict, no, this is these are purely for defensive purposes and they will remain under the control of this particular country? Yeah. So the answer in some situations is it's pretty safe, right? So if you sell wep- if the U.S. sells weapons to the Netherlands, odds are that nothing bad is going to happen. When the U.S. does something like sells handguns to Mexico, which is a case study we have in the policy paper Eric referenced, very frequently those weapons get dispersed to a secondary buyer or tertiary buyer, and then they can end up very quickly in the hands of a drug cartel. And the U.S. really doesn't have the end-use monitoring ability to track those types of weapons. All right. So, uh, you know, the United States really doesn't have any room to be uh, telling countries about the appropriate uses of all manner of weapons. The United States uses weapons inappropriately in countries that we are not officially fighting uh, on a regular basis, killing uh, in some cases, thousands or tens of thousands 
of civilian, non-state, non-military actors, uh, and and just this that's just the past two decades. Uh, so I, I guess what is the expectation that the U.S. government has when it engages in these kinds of weapon sales? Very frequently, when it sells weapons to a variety of countries, there are preconditions to those sales. And that kind of is just general U.S. law in a lot of cases. But in a case like Saudi Arabia, very frequently we will send them weapons and say, hey, you can use this radar system for X, but you can't use it for Y. And then Saudi Arabia turns around and uses it for Y. And in that situation, there's very little recourse the U.S. can take because the weapons have already been delivered. They're already in the hands of the military and or government that purchased them. And the sale has gone through. Uh, Eric, what do we know about the movement of these weapons from like one possessor to another? Well, in many cases, it's very difficult to track because these are either weapons that are taken as part of uh, military operations in those countries. So, for example, when the U.S. left Afghanistan, a lot of the military equipment that we had given the Afghan military after it collapsed got into the hands of the Taliban um, or or in Iraq, a similar phenomenon happened with ISIS in 2014 when it was just starting to come on the scene and it was kicking the butt of Iraqi military units. It would often like take their gear. In other cases, like the some of the things that Jordan documents in the in the policy paper involve corrupt individuals um, selling it. And in that case, it's really difficult to keep track of, say, uh, say like a crate of assault rifles, for example. Uh, that you might sell it to the police force or the military of one country, but in the course of however many years, that mil- that rifle could be uh, taken off the battlefield. It could be sold for a profit. It could be given out as a bribe. Um, so it's very difficult. I will say, you know, to speak uh, in the U.S. government's credit for a second, there is concern about this. Um, however, that concern has not really manifested yet in effective policy. Um, The United States has been trying to track weapons better or to adopt better practices to prevent weapons from getting into the hands of known human rights abusers. Uh, However, as you can imagine, just from a purely technical standpoint, even this is a difficult task. And then you have the politics drawn in of arms sales to the Saudis. It's the sort of thing that most people in Washington know that yeah, these things are probably going to be, or these weapons are probably going to be used in a way the U.S. does not intend. Um, but because of the political aspect of that relationship, they go ahead anyway. Yeah, and, and there are definitely aspects in or people in the U.S. government that are trying to make a difference. In Congress, you have a group of Congress people that are putting out legislation that is designed specifically to reduce the risk in these sales, both by tracking and by placing checks on the president of the United States' ability to just send weapons wherever he wants, right, to empower Congress. The problem is there's a lot of political opposition, and outside of small bills in the National Defense Authorization Act, these things don't really ever, frequently don't ever get to a vote, and when they do get to a vote, they frequently fail. So this raises a, a really big issue, which is, of course, uh, the degree to which Congress versus the president is uh, facilitating these uh, sales or these transfers of weaponry. This seems to fit right in with other 
bad delegations that Congress has engaged in to the president of the United States to aggrandize the White House in uh, perhaps unfortunate ways. What is the what are the mechanisms, Jordan, that are used to make to facilitate these transfers and uh, what can be done to put that back in the hands of Congress? Right. So right now, for any major sale, any foreign military sale, after the it is agreed to, the president has to notify Congress. Congress then has 30 days to review the sale. The catch is Congress has to pass a joint resolution of disapproval. Otherwise, the sale goes through. So if Congress does nothing, that means the sale is good to go. The president often uses this to his power because even if a joint resolution of disapproval passes Congress, the president can just veto it. And unless there's a veto-proof majority in Congress, which there almost never is, those sales go through. And we saw this in the Trump administration numerous times with Saudi Arabia. And we saw a joint resolution of disapproval sponsored by Alan Omar in the House and Rand Paul in the Senate a few months ago for Biden with the air-to-air missiles that were just, it, it didn't even pass Congress. The joint resolution of disapproval failed. And one of the kind of ways forward now is to flip that script. And there's a group of Congress people, Mike Lee, Chris Murphy, and Bernie Sanders that are trying to push this. And what that would do is it would mean any notified sale is automatically a no. Congress would have to pass a joint resolution to approve the sale, which means disapproval is no longer vetoable. So the the default then would be you don't get to do this unless we say it's okay. Exactly. So, uh, Eric, help me understand sort of the, uh, I don't know, public choice game theory here, because uh, when the United States engages in transfers of weapons to other countries, it would seem to be an effort to uh, placate some government entity overseas. It might be to placate some domestic interest in the United States. But uh, broadly, I would think that transferring weapons is better than sending U.S. troops somewhere. So there's a few dynamics at play, Caleb, that could make arms sales like this make sense. You could try to signal support or signal U.S. interest in a certain region without going through the trouble or going through the more aggressive or high-profile step of deploying troops or deploying U.S. military assets. Um, Oftentimes, too, this is a way for arms sales are a way for the United States to share certain really good pieces of defense technology with close partners. Uh, The F-35 program is a great example of that, where the U.S. has only shared that system with countries that it considers really close allies. And if you make it onto the distribution list of the F-35, or if you get taken off that list, that sends a pretty powerful political signal as well. So there's a lot of different reasons. And most of the time when the U.S. sells, especially the high-end weapons, they're going to countries that are relatively stable, have good human rights records, are democracies, et cetera. Um, I think some of the big, the, the biggest high profile different country is Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and the United States has given a ton of military support to the Saudis, um, more so than I believe any other country, just in terms of raw dollar value over the years. And the Saudis have also been one of the worst abusers of human rights, both at home and also 
Uh, they frequently use U.S. weapons to target civilians, especially in the ongoing conflict in Yemen. Let's take the case of Saudi Arabia for uh, a moment here. Uh, Saudi Arabia is undertaking uh, a terrible war in Yemen, and the United States is providing weapons to Saudi Arabia. That would make the United States, in some ways, as far as I can tell, uh, culpable for what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen. And that uh, seems like a terrible bit of policy. Agreed. And, and there's a lot of evidence to support this idea that when the U.S. does sell weapons, it does bring it closer to conflict. Right now, when the U.S. gives Saudi Arabia weapons, they also send U.S. trainers, right, that are sometimes contractors, sometimes military, to train the Saudi military on how to use these weapons. So the U.S. is really in that conflict one step away from being the reason these civilians are getting bombed. And yet, Eric Gomez, the average voter in the U.S. doesn't really care, right? No, they don't appear to. Um, sir, some members of Congress care an awful lot, or at least they say they do. Um, but because, like Jordan said, the way that this arms sale process works in terms of the bills being very difficult to disprove or the deals being very difficult to prevent from going through, even if there is a sizable portion of legislators who don't want the sale to go through, and they're particularly vocal about it. And I think mostly the American people don't care. But if the legislators don't want it to go through and they're vocal about it, if they can't get that veto-proof majority, then the game's over, right? That the president can just say, well, you know, to heck with your disapproval, I'm going to go ahead with it anyway. And that's why any legislation that helps flip this script or, or, or anything that can try and make this more about approving something rather than disapproving something would be much more effective at preventing these things. It's not that people aren't concerned. It's just that they don't have that like two thirds majority of people to be concerned. But I, I would bet it, I would hazard that it's a majority uh, don't want these sales anymore. Jordan? Yeah, I totally agree with everything Eric just said there. I also think unlike something such as war or even what's going on currently in the Ukraine crisis, where it's all over the news, right? Every American that turns on CNN or whatever their news station knows there's a conflict in Ukraine and the U.S. is debating the level of its involvement. Weapon sales to Saudi Arabia are almost never in the news. And then things like weapon sales to the Philippines, where the Filipino government has used U.S. weapons against its own citizens are just never in the news, period. So a lot of this misses public consumption because it just it's not in the news. So there's no salience. What is the case for just the United States? We don't provide weapons to other countries. What is make that case briefly if you can? So I would say that there are certain countries where U.S. weapon sales make sense, especially close allies where we're working on interoperability missions with. But I think in terms of a country like Saudi Arabia or Turkey or the Philippines or Mexico, right, countries where these weapons are going into the hands of risky buyers, that is putting the U.S. at a disadvantage. In Mexico, the U.S. has had to spend double digit millions of dollars in the past five years trying to recover weapons that it sold to Mexico. In Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia was 
indiscriminately bombing in Yemen, the U.S. sent Saudi Arabia radar systems, right? Which costs money, right? That That's back end trying to cover your butt costs. So it's actually really costly to the American taxpayer, even if they don't realize it's happening. I think if you wanted to, to sort of make a, a somewhat easy case of, you know, who do you sell to and who do you not sell to, you know, there's lots of reports out there by non-governmental organizations or what have you to say, look, these are some of the worst, you know, rights violators or most corrupt countries out there and just set a certain threshold and say, you know, below this line of, of a country's quality, we will not sell them anything because the risks are just simply too high. So there's definitely, you know, steps that could be taken here uh, to to sort of not necessarily get rid of all arms sales in, in, in its entirety, um, but s- still meaningfully reduce the risk. It's just been, like we said before, very difficult to get that sort of critical mass um, behind legislation to do it. What's the relationship between uh, corruption in these countries? I can imagine that a lot of the countries that the U.S. would like to support that are in a precarious spot and uh, the governments there feel like they need weapons to uh, defend themselves and the corruption in those countries and likelihood that those weapons will leak and uh, be provided to other actors that may not be aligned with critical U.S. interests. Afghanistan, to me, is just the key, most relevant, like talk about salient, salient case. The U.S. armed the Afghan government, the Afghan military, about as much as they armed any other military ever. And a lot of those weapons were used when the Taliban took over cities in Afghanistan. And the weapons that weren't used by the Taliban are being sold by the Taliban to fund further training and weapon systems for their own military. If people want to read more about uh, this subject and understand this issue more deeply, Jordan, where should they go? So the Cato Institute just released its 2021 Arms Sales Risk Index. It is a really good primer on this issue. And we've also written pieces for outlets like War on the Rocks and, and Defense One and other similar defense outlets. Yeah, Jordan Cohen is the best Cato source on on all of this stuff. It's been great having him. Uh, he joined the team in uh, full time in uh, September of 2021, and before that, he's done a lot of work on this question in annual updates to the Arms Sales Risk Index, which enters its fifth year uh, in 2022. Um, and I know he plans on continuing to produce that. And uh, we had a really good event. Uh, also, in early December, with Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who, along with some other folks in the Congress, has introduced uh, legislation that would, among other things, address this uh, flip the script issue that Jordan mentioned earlier about making arms sales a matter of approval rather than disapproval in the in the Congress. All right, Jordan Cohen, policy analyst, defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute, and Eric Gomez, director of defense policy studies. You can find the Arms Sale Risk Index at our website, cato.org. Chile has elected a hard leftist as president. Ian Vasquez, director of the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, details the lessons for the United States. 
the election of uh, Gabriel Boric is part of a wave of of leftism that has come back to Latin America in the last several years, but it is especially worrisome in the case of Chile. After all, Chile was, uh, without any question, the most uh, successful uh, country in the region, and it's really one of the great development success stories of all times by, by any measure. And yet, uh, Chile decided after several decades of success to elect not just a leftist uh, president, but a far leftist president, somebody who has been allied with the Communist uh, Party, which, which will now be part of the government that he forms, somebody who has for uh, many years praised the, the far left regimes in Latin America from Venezuela to, to Cuba. And when he uh, gave his, his uh, acceptance speech, he vowed, as he did throughout his campaign and throughout his entire political career, to bury the neoliberal model of Chile, that is, the, the free market policies that has, have led to that uh, success. And when you look at, at Chile, you see that by virtually any measure, it far surpasses most developing countries. After all, since the 1970s, when these far-reaching uh, reforms began, um, Chile has quadrupled its income per capita, its, uh, its measures of human development or indicators of well-being far uh, surpass almost any other Latin American countries, usually listed at the top. It's at the top of the human development index by the United Nations. It is the country with the greatest personal freedoms in Latin America. It's one of the freest countries uh, in the world. And um, just looking at infant mortality rates and so on, uh, access to, to, to safe water, virtually any indicator, it far surpasses uh, Latin America. It became, during this period of time, a middle-class country. didn't used to be. Latin America is characterized as being highly unequal. But during this time, Chile became a much more equal country uh, in those terms. And that's important because inequality in Latin America usually uh, and overwhelmingly is the result of uh, government restrictions on people's uh, freedoms and favoritisms that keep the elite in power. Chile implemented policies that started to do away with that. And so uh, among Latin American countries, it's the country that by far has the most social mobility. And according to the OECD, by many indicators, it is more socially mobile than um, most uh, uh, European and advanced uh, democracies. One researcher in, in Chile, Professor Sapelli, has found that uh, Chile is actually more socially mobile than than the number of countries like France and Germany and the United, the United States. So what we've seen during this time is a tremendous uh, success. Also, uh, um, democracy was consolidated. And this all began, of course, uh, after the, the Pinochet coup in 1973 and then in 1975, uh, free market reforms began, far-reaching free market reforms by uh, the so-called Chicago boys who whose goal was not just to implement uh, a free market uh, in a very coherent and well-thought-out way, but to create a free society uh, 
a set of policies that led to political liberty as well as civil and personal liberties. And that was achieved by, by 1990 uh, when there was a transition to uh, democracy. After that transition, for most of that time period, you had uh, center-left governments in charge. And they uh, not only upheld the free market model, they deepened it by establishing free trade uh, treaties with countries all around the world and deepening reforms in a lot of different ways. And so uh, that's, that's the basis of uh, Chile's success. And then in 2010, the first center-right president was elected. His name was Sebastián Piñera. And uh, when he came uh, to power, uh, he, 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 there, there began to be a shift in Chile to the left. He began to rule and govern in a way that was further to the left in, in many respects than the center-left uh, governments that preceded him by increasing taxes, increasing spending, and, and, and so on. In a sense, he was competing also with the left on their own rhetoric. And when that happens, uh, uh, you're going to lose. And the left started going further to the left and, and <laughs> accusing him of being uh, extreme free marketeer, which he never was. And he never really defended uh, uh, free market principles or the principles of the free society in a, in a way that um, uh, was coherent and, and consistent with the reforms that actually made uh, Chile successful. And instead... Um, he started competing with the left. During this entire period of time, the left uh, basically took hold of the narrative in Chile. And that was uh, a big part of, of the problem, uh, which is to say that the entire time uh, they were trying, they were suggesting that, uh, not just suggesting, but outright stating that the system was unfair that it was creating greater inequality, that it was only benefiting the elites at the expense of the rest of society, that it's the same people who always got rich. Uh, all of these things that factually were just plainly incorrect. And so in a sense, the first center-right president, Sebastián Piñera, for those four years in office from 2010 to 2014, were was shifting the country uh, to the left because he was not not only not defending uh, these principles, but he was uh, playing with these ideas uh, of the left. And so the President Bachelet came to power. She was a, a leftist president, and she started saying that we have to undo this uh, free market system. When she began uh, implementing some of these reforms, growth started to go down, and uh, Chile, for the first time, began experiencing stagnation, basically uh, low, very low growth. After decades of having experienced uh, high growth and a lot of uh, progress, but the narrative of the left still predominated in the academies, the universities, the, uh, the media, um, uh, the cultural spaces, the arts, and a good part of the population believed that rhetoric. It was at this time, too, that, this, that the left, the, the political left in Chile, uh, which had always been moderate and and very sensible and had uh, governed in that way, began to radicalize and shift f to the far left. So you had at least half of that left that, that began to become extremist. 
And that had also an effect on the moderate left, which sort of silenced them. Uh, so there was this predominant narrative in Chile and uh, uh, more extremism uh, on the left. And that's the, and that's the, uh, the, the rhetoric and the narrative that basically took over Chilean uh, politics uh, during that, that period of time. But because there was such low growth and people were began to be dissatisfied with what the socialist president uh, Bachelet uh, was doing, during the next elections, they re again elected Sebastián Piñera, who is president now, on the, on the campaign platform that he would uh, strengthen free market reforms and, uh, and reject the kinds of policies that uh, Michel Bachelet had put in. And that was several years ago. He was elected, but he didn't actually do anything to that effect. Growth was still low. And it was at that point, um, 2019, in the, in the fall of 2019, that, uh, that uh, massive protests erupted and you saw a lot of social uh, discontent, uh, much of which was actually stimulated by the by the far left, but people had legitimate uh, grievances. Unfortunately, by the by this point, uh, the far left had already ta taken over uh, the political narrative and dominated it. And so the call was uh, to have a new constitution to overturn what they called uh, thirty years of failure and so on. And President uh, Pineda. I think uh, once again failed in the task of defending the the ideas of uh, that made Chile uh, uh, such a success story, and instead gave in to uh, a lot of what the left's agenda was, including rewriting a whole new uh, constitution. So that's where it leaves us uh, today in Chile, which is a country that has just elected a far left uh, president and that is going through a constitutional assembly dominated by the far left, in which the center right uh, has a minority voice, not even uh, uh, enough of a representation to veto uh, bad ideas. And that will be put up uh, to a vote in a plebiscite uh, later this year. It, it looks to me that Chile is headed uh, in the direction at best toward a, uh, an, an average Latin American uh, country, at worst, uh, toward a real failed uh, Latin American uh, country like, say, Argentina. What are you looking for in terms of measures of human well-being in Chile that have performed so well uh, since the, the 1970s and 1980s and then sort of have, have fallen off in recent years, what are you looking, what measures of human well-being are you looking to see change uh, as this government takes root? I think that uh, if, <laughs> if socialist policies elsewhere in the region are any guide, we're going to see uh, growth decelerate. We're going to see poverty increase. We're going to see inflation go up. We're going to see all sorts of social spending uh, go up or what they call social spending. The government is going to be involved in uh, a lot, uh, uh, huge portions of people's lives, not just uh, through economic interventions, but all sorts of other types of uh, interventions. And uh, that's the, that's the, 
the record of these uh, leftist governments in in power. Uh, one of the great successes of the Chilean um, reforms with the, was a private pension system, which the left has always characterized as unfair, not working, uh, and benefiting only the rich. Uh, none of which is is true. Um, so he has uh, this. Uh, president-elect has vowed to undo it, to get rid of it, and to reinstitute the pay-as-you-go system uh, that much of the rest of Latin America has, and that Latin, all of Latin America, including Chile, used to have, which was a failure and continues to be a failure. So that's uh, going to, of course, ruin the capital markets in Chile, and so we'll see less uh, investment and so on. But I think that uh, what... Uh, what really matters here, and this is a, a lesson for the United States, is the, the big picture, that you can have um, undisputed success. You can have tremendous progress that surpasses, uh, by far, uh, other uh, experiences of countries that uh, have followed other policies and institutions and still have a population vote against those if it believes that somehow that system is unfair, illegitimate, or um, is creating uh, inequality that uh, is unacceptable, even if the facts say otherwise. And so uh, we might ask ourselves, why did this happen in, in Chile? And and as I say, part of the story is the ideological story uh, that that took hold in, in politics. The other part of the story is, I think, simply that Chile's a, uh, a rapidly changing and progressing country over the past several decades. And during the past many several years, that growth slowed down, uh, partly because of these new ideas that started to take hold and create uncertainty. And so there was a sense of unfulfilled expectations. And uh, I think also in countries that um, have so much progress, there is sort of the, the Tocqueville effect, that idea that um, things that w were common before, like widespread poverty or abuses or uh, uh, that kind of thing, child labor, that when a country becomes uh, more prosperous and more successful, those things become less um, common and they become so uncommon that they stand out and people start viewing those things as unacceptable. And so there is a sense that how can we be living in a country with these terrible things going on? Well, in fact, it's a sign of progress. Every country that has uh, progressed has gone through that. And so part of it is the de Tocqueville effect. Part of it is unfulfilled expectations. A big part of it is ideological messaging. And I would not want to conclude from all of this that this is the end of the story um, for Chile, or that this means that all Chileans agree that there is this socialist path to, to go down. Because as a matter of fact, in these elections, the other candidate was a free market uh, right-wing candidate. Some called him uh, far right, but he he wasn't extremist in the way that this president-elect is extremist. He was a conservative, um, but he was the kind of conservative that would respect the Constitution, that would respect the laws, that would uh, respect the institutions uh, of Chile. 
And he was also one who outwardly um, was in favor of the free market reforms that made Chile um, successful. And there hasn't been a politician at that level in Chile for many years that has actually come out and defended those ideas. Um, and yet he got 46% of the vote. And it is also true that the current president, Piñera, was elected only a few years ago on that kind of platform. So Chile is not a simple story of all Chileans decided that these policies that were implemented in Chile were were illegitimate and they have to be reversed and we have to go down this path. It's it's just it's a story of a good chunk of the population bought into that and it has severely affected politics. Once that uh, once the left comes into power, it's going to be much more difficult to fight. I think this is a story of how freedom always has to be defended, but it also has to be defended from the moral point of view. And I think that that part uh, is what has been lacking in Chile over several decades, with the exception of a few individuals in Chile. Ian Vasquez directs the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Startups need capital to compete with bigger companies, and taxes on capital gains can stem the flow of angel investment. At the most recent Cato Club event in Washington, D.C., Chris Edwards made his case for angel investors. So who are angel investors? Uh, Well, they're wealthy people who fund startup businesses. Uh, This is hands-on investment. It is patient investment. Uh, Startup investments often take five or 10 years uh, to potentially pay off. And it's very high risk investment. There's sort of a standard metric in angel investment as well as venture capital that, you know, only about one out of 10 investments is going to be a big hit. And about half of all the investments are actually going to uh, lose money. Uh, There is one estimate. There's about, uh, uh, oh, and, and, you know, by the way, on on the big hits, you know, the, the big hits will generate a big capital gain, and that's why capital gains taxes are so important here. One estimate is that there's about 335 wealthy uh, angel investors uh, in the United States. While the TV show Shark Tank focuses, if you've ever watched on low-tech consumer items, you know, most angel investment is in tech-oriented industries, uh, healthcare, financial services, uh, energy, uh, and, other, and other sort of leading-edge industries. So what do Henry Ford, Alexander Graham Bell, Steve Jobs, and Jeff Bezos have in common? Well, they're all great American entrepreneurs. They all launched uh, great American companies. Uh, But all of them, initially at startup, relied on money from uh, a wealthy person uh, to to help launch their startup. Uh, You know, these these, uh, entrepreneurs couldn't just go to a bank uh, and you know, borrow money. They have very risky uh, ideas, often seemingly crazy-sounding ideas. They need equity investment, and they need and and they need equity investment from a wealthy person who's willing to take a big risk. And that's what angel investment uh, is all about. Uh, in my paper, I discuss some uh, famous angels uh, in American history. Uh, Mark Twain, the writer, uh, used his profits uh, to invest in a whole range of startups in the. In the 19th century, leading edge uh, industries uh, of the day, uh, Twain actually lost his shirt on on most of these uh, investments, and he uh, was became sort of very uh, bitter about it. But I give him a lot of credit for for trying. And actually, his experience shows you how risky uh, investing in leading edge in- industries is. Um, 
Ashton uh, Kutcher, the Hollywood actor, is a well-known uh, angel investor in California. He actually heads up a, a venture capital company as well. Uh, perhaps the most impressive angel investor in recent decades is Ron Conway. Uh, he's a Silicon Valley billionaire. Uh, he says he's invested in 650 startup businesses over the last three decades, which is, which is really uh, impressive. There's many uh, big American companies today were originally angel funded. One of the most fascinating is Micron Technology. It's uh, one of the biggest semiconductor companies uh, in the world today. Uh, it's headquartered in Boise, Idaho, uh, of all places. And the story there is kind of fascinating. These young uh, engineers in the uh, late 1970s, uh, they were working in Texas for a semiconductor company. They went home to Idaho. They wanted to launch a semiconductor company. And they looked around, and they found some local business people who were willing to, to uh, give them $300,000 to launch this startup. Uh, then they went to uh, uh, Idaho potato billionaire, J.R. Simplot, and they got about $15 million. Uh, that allowed them to build their semiconductor uh, plant. Sort of the rest is history. Micron today uh, employs 30,000 people, uh, about 6,000 in Idaho, uh, all because they were able to find uh, a local angel investors uh, in Idaho to, to fund this kind of seemingly crazy uh, idea. Uh, serial entrepreneurs are, of course, people who start many businesses. And you know what you see often uh, in history is that you know entrepreneurs they'll get rich uh, on their initial startup, then they'll use the cash to invest in uh, uh, many uh, additional startups uh, and launch uh, numerous companies. Uh, Thomas Edison got wealthy, inventing better stock ticker and telegraph machines. He, of course, used his wealth to open a research uh, labs and start uh, many uh, businesses. So angel investors and venture capitalists, uh, what's the difference? Well, angels are individuals. Uh, they invest about 25 billion a year in about 65,000 uh, mainly tech-oriented startups. Uh, venture capitalists are, are partnership structures. Uh, last year, they invested about $166 billion into uh, startups and growth companies, uh, about 11,000, a lot fewer companies, but the investments uh, are bigger than, than the angel investments. You know, the classic Silicon Valley startup is self-funded. Uh, you know, if they progress, they get some angel funding. If they're successful, they'll get multiple rounds of venture funding. And then ultimately, if they're successful five or 10 years later, uh, they'll do an IPO or they'll get uh, acquired. Uh, and that IPO or acquisition ultimately, you know, will generate a capital gain, uh, which, uh, you know, often uh, is taxable. So two thirds of all IPOs in the United States now are venture backed companies. And about half of those are angel financed. So angel and venture capital funded companies are becoming increasingly uh, important to the US economy. So what is the virtuous cycle of wealth? Uh, this sort of may, may be an obvious point to uh, this audience, but you know, wealth from successful startups in places like Silicon Valley you know, is often recycled into new startups by the angels and the venture capitalists and the entrepreneurs who are successful. You know, they reinvest their money in leading edge startups of the day. Uh, angels and venture capitalists like to uh, invest close to home, which strengthens these technology hubs. So you know, the reason why we have technology hubs like Silicon Valley and Austin, Texas and others is not just because engineers and entrepreneurs like to live near each other. Uh, it's because this cycle of wealth just sort of builds and compounds uh, over time. Uh, in my study, I go into some earlier Silicon Valleys, and you see these same patterns, you know, well back in history. Uh, 120 years ago in Detroit, it was very much a Silicon Valley. There was hundreds of startup automobile companies. 
Uh, Henry Ford, you know, didn't just go down uh, to a local bank and borrow uh, and borrow money for uh, the what became the Ford Motor Company. He had actually failed at his two first two startups. Uh, he went to a local a rich person who took a big risk on a, uh, investing in Henry Ford. Cleveland, a, a few decades earlier, was also very much a hotbed uh, of leading edge industries of, like electricity. And even further back uh, uh, in, in history in the 18th century, I go into a little bit of my uh, study, you see these same patterns. Uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution uh, is generally thought to start in the, you know, the Midlands in England around Birmingham in the early 18th century. And, you know, economic histories will, will often discuss the famous entrepreneurs who made advances in steam engines and iron technology and that sort of stuff. But if you look behind those entrepreneurs, you will usually find a wealthy person uh, who had some money and was, and was willing to take uh, a big risk on unknown new technologies or entrepreneurs. Chris Edwards directs tax policy studies at the Cato Institute. In the age of COVID-19, Americans rely more than ever on digital networks to work, socialize, and learn, which makes safeguarding the privacy and security of those networks even more essential. At the Cato Institute's surveillance conference in December, Democratic U.S. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon kicked things off. This is one of the most important issues with respect to surveillance and uh, privacy. And it's being uh, fought on a new front, one that many Americans, including many in Congress, know virtually nothing about. Multiple federal agencies, including the Internal Revenue Service, the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, have purchased Americans' data without any court oversight at all. Now, the heart of the problem in my view, is the Electronic Communication Privacy Act. Came from the 80s. It only protects data held by companies with whom consumers have a direct relationship. So we'd be talking about Google, Facebook, Apple, phone companies, AT&T, Verizon. They are all covered. These companies can only share our data, your data, with the government under a strict set of circumstances which usually require a court order. This would include metadata. So while ECPA doesn't require a warrant for the government to demand our metadata, it does require a court order, uh, one that is easier to get, but still has to be authorized by an independent judge for disclosures of most metadata. So Congress in 86, strictly regulated government surveillance involving tech and telecom companies, at least those providing services to the public, it did nothing to prevent them from sharing your metadata with third parties. ECPA contained loopholes that allowed telecom and tech companies to share and sell to other companies metadata about the web pages we read, the apps that we download, and the places we go. Once a tech or telecom company sells our information to somebody else, it's basically open season. Data broker uh, 
gets this information and that information is no protection under ECPA or the third party doctrine. So shady middlemen, and these are, you know, people, you know, essentially above all kinds of regulation can sell our personal information to the government without any kind of court order. So that's loophole one. Another is technology infrastructure companies aren't covered by ECPA. So when somebody uses Gmail, sends an email to a user of Yahoo Mail, that email will likely pass through several companies that own or operate fiber optic cable cell towers and internet exchanges. These infrastructure companies are also, also not covered by federal privacy law. So they can share or sell our metadata to the government. So you see the wide expanse of relevant agencies that are essentially in 2021, not covered by a law passed uh, in the uh, 80s. So this is something I've cared about for more than a decade. As a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, I have access to classified information about the intelligence community, other parts of the government. And I'm able to see, and I wanna emphasize this, this is another case, another case of what we've talked about over the years, Julian, I, Cato, others, secret interpretation of the law, secret in order to legislate and conduct um, you know, oversight. But I'm often not able to reveal the details of what I've learned. So some of you remember the battle, the Orwellian interpretation of Section 215, the fight with uh, the NSA, the security agency. Part of the intelligence, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act which uh, NSA used for years to obtain in bulk phone records about millions of Americans' communications has long been a concern. The government has adopted a twisted ruling of the law and gotten the nation's top secret surveillance court to sign off on it. All this happened while the public was in the dark. Now, I'm a firm believer, and I've said this at Cato, that while it can be very necessary to keep the sources and methods of surveillance secret, the law and how the government interprets it should never be kept secret from the American people. So on this particular problem, companies selling, again, your data to the government, we're pushing on two fronts. First, we're uh, investigating uh, the sale of Americans' location data and have been since 2018. Our first target's been the phone companies, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint. And we caught them selling data to these sleazy data brokers that let prison guards and local law enforcement agencies track any phone in America without any kind of court order at all. Investigative journalists soon discovered the same data brokers we're also selling location data to bounty hunters, used car salespeople, and would-be stalkers. Based on our work, and I really, again, want to commend the diligent, persistent work of journalists. The Federal Communications Commission fined the carriers $200 million. And I do single out the journalists. Most folks know my dad was a reporter. He always said, you know, be persistent, follow up. Journalists have in this area. And so we've had a win for consumers and their privacy, but now the wireless carriers are fighting the fines and arguing they have the legal right to sell 
enormous amounts of their customers' data. Beyond wireless carriers, there are plenty of other corporations selling location data collected from American phones. The advertising technology industry has picked up the slack, so to speak. Tell you how this works. When you install a smartphone app, let's say a weather uh, app, and it asks you for permission to access your location data, third-party data brokers are able to piggyback on that permission and collect information from your phones, which they go on uh, to sell. These data brokers <clears throat> typically pay app developers a fee for the data they go out and siphon off. In February of 2021, the Wall Street Journal reported that Ventel, a shady data broker in Virginia, was buying location data generated from smartphone apps. They packaged it up for access <clears throat> through an easy-to-use website and sold access <clears throat> to government agencies for thousands of dollars a pop. Ventel has sold data to CBP, ICE, the DEA, <clears throat> and the IRS. So far, we've confirmed that the IRS and CBP have used the tool without any kind of court supervision. And they've used it to track Americans' phones. And just last week, <clears throat> I succeeded in pushing the utility companies to end their practice of letting data brokers sell their customers' private information to law enforcement agencies and private investigators. So this is a <clears throat> shameless end run, a shameless end run around the Fourth Amendment. These agencies would need a court order to obtain location data from AT&T and Verizon or from Google and Facebook, but they've just exploited the data broker loophole. And Ventil isn't the only company. There are several data brokers involved in this industry, and they are the target now of our ongoing oversight investigation. It is still not clear why these agencies have been able to get away with this, why they've been able to buy location uh, data from any source after the Supreme Court's Carpenter decision. The court didn't increase, this, didn't create a special exception to the Fourth Amendment for data brokers or allow the courts to bypass, allow the government to bypass the courts as long as they were out there using the credit card and paying for information. I've asked several government agencies for copies of the legal opinion. They have been relying on to use this data without a court order. And I want people following this discussion to know we won't give up on this until we get some answers. These companies need to be shut down and Congress needs to step up to prevent the government from using a credit card instead of a warrant. Ron Wyden is a Democratic U.S. Senator from Oregon. A few principles ought to guide efforts to push branches of government back into their proper constitutional roles. In San Diego, California, in December, I sat down with Daniel Dew of the Pacific Legal Foundation, who offered some big-picture principles for reining in the branches of government. We have to look at each branch of government and reform how they operate in, in the regulatory space. Regulations have the, the force and effect of law. They're, they can take away your liberty, they can take away your property, 
And so we want to make sure that each branch is still performing its proper function. So we need meaningful legislative oversight over regulations. We need executive accountability. It's the governor or the president's administration that is that's putting these regulations forward. So making sure that somebody who's politically accountable to the people signs off on those things. And then finally, when it comes to the courts, making sure that they don't have their thumb on the scale of justice in favor of one party, especially when that party is the government. Having heard that those bullets laid out, seems like we're batting maybe 0 for 3. I think so. Yeah, I think that, that that's part of the problem. We've, I, But I do think that we have an opportunity. You know, over the last 18 months, we've lived in a world without a separation of powers. We've seen what happens when power is concentrated in one person. And usually when we have this lack of separation of powers and it's just overregulation, it destroys one person at a time, one business at a time, or maybe even one industry. But we as a collective got to see what happens when power goes to one person and we don't like it. We don't like it when one person can decide which healthcare we can receive, which businesses are essential, and so forth. Taking these in turn, what would robust legislative oversight look like? I know that, you know, the, uh, people have heard me say this before. In Congress, you have workhorses and show horses, and it seems like so many people in Congress want to be show horses and not workhorses and do that sort of basic oversight. So what does a more robust legislative oversight look like? It can come in a lot of different forms. So it could be a sunrise review where where legislators have to look at any new regulations. You could have a sunset review where they look at regulations so often to make sure that they're they're still needed. You can also look at at certain regulations. So at the at the federal level, there's been a bill been that's been pending for over a decade now, I think, the Rains Act where if there was something that was a major bill, uh, a major regulation that impacts more than $100 million, then it would have to be approved by the by Congress in order to go into effect. And that makes sense because it, it impacts so much of, of the economy and, and so much of a particular industry. And it puts the onus back on Congress when it comes to creating uh, rules that have the effect of law. Absolutely. We want... When things uh, have the effect of law, it should go through the lawmaking process. It should go through Congress. It should be signed by the president or the governor or, or the executive in charge. It seems like there is a, you know, to the extent that we're doing sunset review, which to me should imply that rules sunset. <laughs> it does. <laughs> right? But, but rules don't sunset or too often they don't sunset. And uh, what about putting a time limit on all these all these rules and saying, hey, Congress, you want to keep this rule? You go ahead. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. And it depends. Right. So so this is an issue not just at the federal level, but also at the state level. And you do have some states. So, for example, Idaho recently did away with a ton of very burdensome burdensome regulations. And the way that that happened is their regulations do expire every year. And then the legislature has to has to uh, approve them over again. And there was a time when the they weren't able to get to that. And so all of the uh, regulations expired. And 
they had a, a proactive governor who was regulatory reform minded and basically just implemented some regulations on an emergency basis, but told all of the agencies, come back to me and justify the regulations and just don't even come back with the ones that are no longer needed. And they were able to cut a huge percentage of their their administrative code that way. And given the way that uh, Congress likes, likes to wait until the last minute to do a lot of things, um, that seems like a good idea for uh, the federal level. That is, if if you don't get to it, people don't have to live under these rules anymore. Darn, too bad, right? That would, <laughs> that would just be tough. Okay, so with respect to the executive branch, what reforms need to be made there? Sure. So making sure that somebody who is politically accountable signs off on final rules and regulations. So at the federal level, we think that it should be somebody who's who is at least presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed, somebody who goes goes through that process. Um, Pacific Legal Foundation did a report uh, years ago that uh, looked at FDA regulations, found out that 98% of them over a 17-year period were unconstitutionally uh, signed off by career bureaucrats, not anybody who was politically accountable in any way. And who wrote that report for PLF? Angela Erickson, who is nice just lady. our fantastic strategic uh, research director. She's, She's a nice lady. She is. She is such a nice lady. I I like her a lot. Probably not as much as you like her, but she's she's great. Yeah. So the issue of whether or not who signs off, people signing off on these rules, one of the, the problems that was longstanding was people signing off on rules were not confirmed by the Senate. They did not have the imprimatur of the legislative branch of the government. And I, I have a lot of sympathy for the idea that somebody with that uh, sign-off from the Senate ought to be responsible for these. But how does that, does that really move the needle? I think it could, because at least at that point, you could say that if there's a bad regulation, if there's a harmful regulation, that, you know, this president's administration is responsible for it. There's no passing the buck. or if we have a a good administration that wants to undo regulations, it's another it's another arrow in their quiver, right? It's another way that they can stop bad regulations from going into effect rather than it, the agencies being this black box where regulations just appear. Daniel Dew directs the Pacific Legal Foundation's legal policy work. The 7th Annual Human Freedom Index presents the state of human freedom in the world based on 76 distinct indicators of personal, civil, and economic freedom. Co-published with the Fraser Institute, the index ranks 165 countries using data from 2008 to 2019, the most recent year for which sufficient data are available. Find out how the U.S. ranks and learn more about the state of human freedom around the world at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.